Hola, hola, everyone. Today's interview is with the Emmy award-winning poet and philosopher Alan Cook for his beautiful documentary called Home that was shot in New York City and about the feeling of home and New Yorkers during his time there. He draped parts of the movie with his poetic flow and segments of interviews with several world-renowned actors like Liam Neeson, Mike Myers, Alfred Molina, Susan Saradon, Woody Allen, and more. Also known as the Wild Irish Poet, a field I completely resonate with and pursue as an artist. Alan is a deep soul. His poetic work is focused on the landscape of Ireland, nature, and the healing power of nature. His book, Beauty, Loss, and Redemption holds poems from the soul of Ireland. Words have power, power to change our lives, as it reprograms our subconscious mind and vibrates into the energy fields around us, affecting the lives of all those that receive them. So let's get a glimpse into Alan's soul a philosopher, poet, writer, and speaker, living in the West of Ireland. So let's flow into conversation. Alan will even read out some of his beautiful poems. We cover everything from the artist's voice, patriarchy, the lockdown, and meditation. So Alan, tell us a little bit about where about in the West of Ireland you are. I'm in a place called the Burren. I'm in a place called County Clare, which is right on the Atlantic side of Ireland. And uh, obviously Ireland is an island, but it's a very primal, wild, sort of uh, elemental place. Uh, I've been out in the landscape here in nature for, for over a decade. Um, I've been living in this particular place. It's an eco-retreat centre, which is suddenly feeling like something out of a movie now because it's all locked up. I've been living here for two and a half years. I'm sure given the situation right now, there'd be a lot of people who would love to live in an eco-retreat, so live it up for us. I know you get out in nature a lot, and you do a lot of volunteer work around there that keeps you active, which is awesome. Those of you who enjoy nature and poetry, do find Alan Cook on Facebook and watch some of his Facebook Live videos where he actually reads out a his book and sits in nature and the eco retreat so you can really get a taste of what that part of the world feels like. Alan, tell us what you think the purpose of an artist's voice is. In these times, um, an artist's voice becomes a sort of a, if it's, if it's, if it's realized correctly, it can become a sort of a flame, a torch. Because when you're engineering language, every day in the media to have a certain vibration and a certain sort of negative energy and a certain impingement on your freedom and also increasing sort of like the fear-based fight or flight sort of uh, interaction between the global community. Then what the artist does is he's the bam. And my job as a poet is to, is to, is to bring back beauty in language, not floweriness, but the beauty in language, which means the essential truth of language. To bring back beauty in language and to restore the true etymology of the origin of, of words. Our words have been hijacked by powers, by media, by the construct of patriarchy. And so in the world we're actually going through is a battle of language. It is. And if a, if a poet or a writer 
or speakers with what I do, if they're aiming their arrows in the right direction, then their language carries uh, a sort of penetrating truth that can can sort of uh, break down the ice of that falsity of, of, of conditioned language because we're brought up a lot of conditioned language. So poetry, one of the aspects of what I do is a living experience. All right, get into that a little bit. What do you mean it's a living experience? So if I channel poetry as a bardic poem, for people who don't know, bardic poem is an original tradition in Ireland here, which is not really spoken of these days, where they were second in, second in authority only to the king back thousands of years ago. So they would carry a lot of power and weight because they knew and respected the power of the idea of words. But when a poet spoke or wrote or was commandeered to eulogize or, or denigrate somebody, it would be done with a lot of respect and also a lot of fear feared because they had the power to to to, uh, to to destroy someone with words, to destroy with, with language, or to venerate them. Now, if you take that and realize that the shadow, I, I call language in the world is in its shadow state because it's not being used in the right context. If you go and you look at the etymology or the, or the, uh, or the, or the, or the trace, the origin of a word, it's a very important thing to do almost as a therapeutic exercise to realize that there's so much energy in one word, there's so much history in a particular word, there's so much ancestral carrying of a word from one mouth to the other over thousands and thousands of years. So when you create a poem or a piece of language, you're like keep that flame alive as an artist. And that's ultimately what I've sort of been doing because I'm lucky or unlucky or lucky that I've been, I had to go through a very, very difficult journey and then come to doing a huge amount of writing to heal myself. But then those in the medicine of creation of the words, not only was I healing myself, for the future of others, I was creating languages that would, a language of words that would, would, would help others. And that's, in this retreat center I've lived in, this became a place of practice. But not only in the creation of the words, but also physically, because I talk a lot about the elements, I talk a lot about nature, I talk about a lot about the divine masculine, and how the only way it can be transformed from the wound of the male is through the body of, of, of divine nature, not therapeutic, not languaging of nature. So what you're doing is you reconstitute your wounds through bringing the language of nature into your body again and uh, work on themselves. You know, because if they don't, if they don't gain that back, um, they then become damaging to others. Because when you're not healed, you'll damage others around you. It's as simple as that. We have more global examples to certain types of leaders that are damaging, causing huge damage in the world because of their own, own inner emotional illness. So I'm lucky that I walked and wrote through all of my losses. And I was in the deepest, most harshest part of nature to, uh, to be taught again, to be given the medicine of nature and then translate that into words. So when people hear my work, they see the references a lot to the medicine of the landscape, which is very really tapping into a very old thing in Ireland anyway. So, so uh, yeah, that's where I've been. Okay, so talk a little bit about the male construct and what you feel needs to shift. A lot of men, say, for example, who have a lot of history of, of familial, lineal sort of self-loathing or shame or addictive behavior. Um, they need to be way more out of nature than be stuck in a societal 
train box of an office, home of maybe an unhappy structure of Mars. They need to be have the courage to be outside of all of that. What's your take on the thought that great pain creates great art? What what a lot of people do now, I think, in this sort of very... Uh, I see a lot of workshops coming here to this retreat center, and a lot of it's about expunging your pain, expunging your shadow, expunging, facing your demons. And it's all very contrived. So it becomes a very false way of sort of poking at things that maybe shouldn't be opened. Whereas the journeys I've made have been this natural organic flow into, into, the, into, the, into the medicine of nature. And I think pain, whether it's, you're, not, you're gonna have pain in your life anyway. So it's like if artists are waiting around to feel suffering, don't worry, just wait a while. It's gonna come whether you like it or not. It's what you do in those moments that really defines it. So these people who go off to like cottages in, in far from places to, to write or to find themselves, in a strange way, that's a falsity because no matter where you go, you're going to be looking at yourself. And if something tragic or hard comes into your life, that's when people are at their least creative, whereas I became my most creative then to save me. So I alchemized it at the moment that it was given to me. So when it came in, I went to here to... Has it happened? Like a forge. If a forge is lit up and heated, you don't wait around for it to get If it's happened, you put in the metals. You, you, te- you, te- you temper the lack. You temper your inner life. And this is the point I really want to bring home to people listening, is you have choices. Life is a series of choices. And obviously, when you're pushed up against a wall or crisis comes your way, you could retreat or you could move through it. And now moving through it doesn't mean that you fight a battle that isn't yours. In fact, it means you're not fighting at all. The thing that you're doing is silencing your mind, going inward, and recognizing how you created the situation. Because I think here's where humans fail, is we fail to take responsibility that we are creating this reality we live in, and at at, at any moment, we have the choice to change it. And now that obviously takes some courage. It takes being able to say that, you know, you're feeling certain emotions that aren't very pleasant, and you want to address them for yourself, within yourself, and come out the other end. People telling me, you know, that, well, you know, we've got busy life. We can't just abandon everyone around us. Well, this isn't about abandoning anyone around you. This is about realizing that you need to stop abandoning yourself so that you can show up for the people around you you love the most, starting with loving yourself. And now loving yourself doesn't mean you're narcissistic, and that's a whole other conversation. It means recognizing the feelings you're feeling and not covering them up with goo or gunk. You, you know, if you're feeling rage, you feel rage and get past it so that you can get back to feeling, feeling that sense of peace, fulfillment, love. And love is being able to look fear and guilt and shame in the face and say, yeah, I feel you. I do feel you. And I want to get past you. And when people ask how... The answer is just go inside, go within, shut your eyes. Don't fear yourself. And I can say that now only because I took that journey and I know how liberating it is and I want nothing more but more than for more people to feel that freedom, that sense of knowingness from within. Does that mean I'm always there? No. 
it's something you have to practice in the present moment. And there are days when you can be on and there, there are days when you can be off. And I think that journey inward teaches you how to be more aligned, more in tune, more one, so to say, with your being more times than not. How did you take that decision? Like, you obviously had a really difficult situation that you said shook you, right? But you could have gone either way. So what, what, what made you, you decide to do the work on reflecting within? There's a poem called Invictus. I'll read it to you. It's a short poem by a Scottish poet. Nelson Mandela kept this poem in his inside pocket when he was going through his 28 years of incarceration. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this wrath of tears, beyond this place of wrath and tears, looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. And the captain of my soul. The last few lines are very important to me because I've done talks. One of them is called Illumination in the Darkness, a journey towards magic and redemption. I think that's what's called. I can't remember the name of my own talk. And uh, one of the things I talk about is you're asking me, how did I make a decision? I didn't make that decision because if you're listening to the part of yourself, that's underneath the chaos, the calamity, the mental condition, conditioning and confusion. There is a, there's the soul. And I see the image of the soul. If you think of it like a, if you think of it, a storm and a ship on top of an ocean. And it's tossing and turning and it's breaking and it's, you know, careening. It looks like it's going to sink. That's your mind. If you go underneath the ocean of that storm and you see this beautiful blue whale moving silently through canvas. That's your soul. So who's steering the ship? If you listen truly, being the captain of your own soul is taking, is allowing that part of you to guide you. So I didn't meditate or make a decision. It was being made for me in a way, and it just followed it in a way. And Alan Watts is a lovely saying. He says, um, if you're in, if you're in troubled waters, don't row. Put up a sail. Happiness passes. Growth is permanent. When you grow, when you've grown like a bit of a tree grows a little limb, that's going to stay the way. It's it, that's permanent. So, my whole process or my whole journey, I think, unexpectedly, has been about a huge amount of growth. So, and if you haven't done that as an artist, then you've nothing to offer the world. So, instead of trying to row against. Put up the sail and allow the torrents and the currents to bring you where it may be. And most people don't have the courage for that. They want medication. They want addiction. They want over therapy. I agree with therapy, but they want to cling on to the rocks instead of letting go. And when you let go, it's the most terrifying thing to go to the darkest corners of yourself. But that's where all the alchemy is. That's where all the gold is. That's where all the transformation is. And that's where all the growth is. And it's a great Irish philosopher and poet called John Moriarty. 
who I'm very influenced by, and he said, it's not, it's not are you happy, it's is it, are you growing? So how did you alchemize these growing pains? When I'm walking, that is a form of meditation. And the Buddhists say the more you walk, the more you purify. Meditation is actually listening to the language of nature. I don't get too involved with my mind. I get it. It's like I'd rather be away from it. This thing of mindfulness, I prefer mindlessness. I'd rather be in the physical body and in the sensual. And again, John Moriarty said, um, the only way to be reborn is through your senses, not your mind. So the more you're out by oceans and in nature, the more you're, you're engaging with your primal language, which doesn't have words. I mean, I always say to people, if you go out into the world and you try to not put a label on anything, that's a very deep meditation. So a tree isn't a tree, it's a piece of living. We're taught from birth how to, um, how to name things. And by naming things, you kill things. Whereas a child who's just born would see everything as an experience. So if, you, if you're in nature deep enough, that's, if that veil starts to get lifted and you see things as just pure experience, and you don't need psychedelics for this, it's purely organic, then, then when I write, I'm writing with a sense of, of, of a new experience for something that, like the film that I made, the film made about New York home, that was me trying to see what everyone took for granted and show it in, in, in a different way, you know? So... I'd not, I think meditation is beautiful. I just think my, med, my own feeling of meditation is, is more about the relationship with nature and keeping in connection. But like if I'm having a bad time or I walk a lot down to see my neighbor, all I have to do is just glance up at the stars and see the power of it all. That is like an immediate meditation. You go boom, all of this fear is wiped away and you just, you're looking at a much more immense overview. And that's a practice, I think. You know, and I got that a lot more from living in a place of this. New York City more about the relationship of, of the jungle of human nature as opposed to the actual nature itself. Walking meditations with the concept of surrender. So you're not really thinking through, you're not using your mind, you're just there in the present moment. You're taking in whatever is around you. And that could also be on a busy street, that you're just very observant about the sounds and smells and the interactions of people. but being present is what it comes down to, which I think is so powerful. I think it's very important for me as a writer. I can't go back. Home. I can't go back now to to that false idea of that we're separate from everything. And I think it's what's really pertinent. It's destroying our species is our separation. We've lost the kingdom of heaven inside ourselves. We have to find it there first before we can go back out there. So we're very separated right now. On that note, what do you feel about what's going on in the world right now? Of course, these virus things and this, this mania, this is just accelerating our isolation even more. Whereas I'm, I'm pulling back more in response to that to go back out to my, to my, to my, to nature, which is my, my, I'm the servant of nature. You know, I'm, I'm only, she works through me. I don't, I don't command or, or demand anything of her, you know. So when I channel my work, what is, is that? It's, uh, it's just there. I mean, all my poetry, all my work is done without any edits. It's just there. That's because things inside me have been forging for a long time. I don't just go and sit and build the poem and then rewrite it and re-edit it. Um, to me, that just doesn't—it doesn't work for me. It's—it's—it's it's, it's because I have to 
say these things. When I was going through the deepest, darkest part of my life, I was I was writing once one poem a day for two years, and there was no effort in that. It was because it was write or die. That was where I was at in my life. The thing I literally was the only thing that was saving me was just doing. Now, when people can get to that point and realize that they can, that's when you know how powerful our art is. When it saves your life, your life, the creator's life. So when you go to read it to other people, the energy's in there from that experience. Oh. You've talked about the power of words, which is also the power of narration. And that can be depicted in any form of art, really. So tell us a little bit about your feelings of what's going on in the world right now. The power of storytelling in whatever form of art... Or whatever role you play really in your life. I mean, you could be an artist, you can be a business leader, you could be a team player, you could be a mom, you could be a daughter, you could be a son. We're all creating stories using words. And I think now more than ever, with the world having gravitated towards so much fear, I think the power of word and the power of depicting story is so important. But artists have been doing this forever and a day. I mean, they are very in tune with their emotions. That's how they express. So what would you say an artist's role is, given the global situation? Well, we're in a dopamine, we're in a dopamine saturated environment. And I was saying to people here this morning, with the escalation of social control and manufactured consent of everything shutting down and people staying away from each other, I have never in my entire life seen one specific incident in the world be so talked about in the media at such a volume, an unprecedented, unrelentless volume. I've never seen that in my life. Now, I could get into the conspiracy of why I think this happening. It doesn't matter. But the point is that that goes against the very essence of your inner nature. Now, with dopamine, like hits from the internet, if you're getting that with just one subject, like 24 hours a day, that's bound to affect your nervous system. It becomes even more, this becomes even more important. Words, language, the negation of, of the speed of being made afraid. And that's when an artist really can step up to the plate and go and slow things down and draw a different perspective. Not only in, in, with the brain, but with the heart, with the soul, have a soul expression and a soul writing and a soul meaning to 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 negate to cauterize this sharp tense sort of uh fearful energy you know so it's like it is like the bam of a tree or the bam of the ocean that's what an artist should feel like for someone to come into them to get away from the madness basically you know so yeah Experiencing art is a form of release just as much as it is a form of release to create it. What does the ideal world look like to Alan? Well, I think an ideal would be an avalanche of, of permanent kindness, like, like an, 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 an evolu a revolution of kindness, not of, of hippie love, like, kind of like, but also uh, the alchemy of suffering. In that, yeah, we all talk about this, we're interconnected, we're interconnected, but I'm actually talking about coming home to yourself is the only way for us all. Like, you know, if you want to really know yourself, go home. People travel the world to Kathmandu and to the, out in the bush and in the India at all, and go home. Go home to where you are and just look at yourself because... um, I fear for... for I don't... 
I don't fear for our species. That's not me being cynical, but I just, I would hate to live in a world that's being created right now. I think it's a tragedy. It's sort of like uh, this rigid, patriarchal sort of like the consent of populations sort of doing what they're told to do. And, and there's, no, there's no beauty or poetry or longing anymore. It's just like looking, looking like a goldfish. You can't remember what it used to be to have an ordinary life. My dream would be for people to celebrate the ordinariness of life more and not be so climbing to these false heights of ambition. You know, it's like, like the beauty of everything, the flower, you know, planting something, you know, fixing something, a conversation, you know. So if we can't, if we lose that, but we get into the sort of the highway of capitalism, like all the powers that be, we're, we're aiding our own doom and we're actually, we're encouraging our own destruction, you know. So if we don't face our shadow, it's over. Jung said that. If we don't look at our shadow, it's the one thing that's going to destroy us. And so um, it's, it's really hard to answer that because... I know what I want. I know what I hope for. But then, I think people really, 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 truly. Sorry. It's important to voice that. It's important that ideal world, because, like you said, words carry vibrations, and you know these these frequencies need to be put out to the world. Because I do believe that the more the more people start to change their their thought and belief system on what we can create as a community through collective consciousness you know we can do it i mean it may not be in our generation or it could be in our generation but it could be there for for the generations down the line it it takes building momentum so art tugs at the emotions so it's a responsibility an artist has as well in what they they want to depict either their own story or paint one for the world or preservation of culture. And all of these are very important roles. What's your take? So the question is, do you believe artists have the power to influence transformation? A transformation or or alchemy of suffering into kindness at scale? I'll give an example. Hold on. I want to get this quote here because I think it sums it up. And you've probably read it. Uh, Jared and Terrence McKenna. Yes, of course. Yeah, okay. The artist's task is to save the soul of mankind, and anything else is dithering while Rome burns. Because of the artists who are self, self-selected, I like that, for being able to journey into the other. If the artist cannot find the way, then the way cannot be found. So, but they have to have courage to get at, not, the main courage is to get out of the ego. Oh, yes. Like, I, you know, in 2009, I won an Emmy Award for this film about New York, the one home, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought it was the pinnacle of something. And it was actually the beginning of a large descent into darkness, <laughs> funny enough. So, <laughs> the real treasure is my growth. Mm-hmm. That's, the most, that's the most valuable thing I have in my life is how much I've grown. In the, in the last, in the 10 years since that and all this shit that happened to me and what I did with that compost is the most, I wouldn't change that. It's very valuable to me. Mm-hmm. So if artists have courage to go down into the abyss and stay there for as long as it takes, um, 
you'll come up onto the shore reborn. So, and that rebirth will be medicine for others. Of course, you can create the ideal even through words. It's a battle of language, you know. So you're a reminder, you should be a reminder of, of all things noble, all things uh, courageous, all things hopeful, all things beautiful, and all things poetic. And these are not things to be cast aside for survival. They are for our survival. They are part of our survival because they're survival of our actually our humanity is not just our population. Our humanity is, is, is those philosophical qualities. Mm. And I won't say separate us from the animals. I have too much respect for animals. But separate us from, her, for, from our savage selves, mm. from our cruel selves, from our violent selves, from our destructive selves. I don't, I don't like when making people compare. I think animals are deeply noble. Name one animal that's left a bit of trash on the earth. No, you know, so really, people say, well, you're nothing more than an animal. I find that as a compliment, actually. <laughs> I have a significant loyalty to, to the animal kingdom in terms of the symbols I've seen in my darkest moments, always being given by the arbiter of nature. Like when I was, when I was pretty much close to the end of my life inside myself, a robin landed on this old hawthorn tree outside my old home. And even though I was in the midst of just huge pain, I seen the robins just looking at me to remind me of, of a deeper symphony that it was playing, being played out upon me. I'll read that poem later. I just want to read this poem. Can I read a poem? Of course you can. Go ahead. I've been reading this one for the last couple of days, but I like it. It's about nature, actually. It's about... It's about a spider, and it's called Spinning Through Time. I watched a spider today spinning its beautiful web. Perfect shapes were woven, an engineer of silk, barely threaded onto nettles to hold its God-given design. I sat there for small eternities to watch in relation to earth and spider movements. There was no time, only a sense of an unfolding. Suddenly a moth speeds past, unaware of the trap being set. The spider's home was spawned in the first days of autumn, and in the air was the cool mix of heat and impending darkness in the wind. But he spun on, and later I watched all the seasons of rain and sun changing the shadows in my own heart. And now I wonder if the web held fast when the wind blew stronger. And I see him waiting with great patience in all the seasons. And I wonder, like I wonder for myself, will the unseen universe take care of him as time moves forward in all its glorious mysteries? I'll read one more poem in the midst of that because in this part of the world, mm. in Ireland, we originally are a native tribe, was what's called the bachelor farmer. A lot of farming community here, and there would have been men who would have been left the farm from their parents, and the others would have left the home to emigrate. Immigration was huge in Ireland's history. And these men became placeholders of the landscape. They never traveled anywhere, they just tended the farm to all the seasons of winter. 
And the man I met up in my old house was a man who died shortly after noon, but he struck me as someone who held all the rivers of time and nature in his hand and in his eyes. So this is very much a definitive um, description of the burren, this 350 million year old limestone landscape I live in. It's quite unique here. <laughs> As opposed to the other vision of Ireland, which is full of greenery and beauty. <coughs> Sorry. So this is just a little story about his life, or a little poem about his life I want to read. A lot of people like this poem, you know, and it's very much, if you haven't been to Ireland, it gives you a sense of the place and the type of people here. It's called The Farmer's Hands. Winter bore a man of earth, a burned, lonely man. His old-lit eyes and uncreased face, staring from a cottage in a dark and lonely place. He died before I knew him well, and cows circled his broken home, taking vows of silence as the rain poured in. He was a ghost who walked alone. He had hands of rock, yet he moved like the wind as a sovereign, silent clock. He tasked his animals with gentle care. I would seem to the windows, a ragged ghost of the holy air. Whilst others lined the concrete roads, filled with worries and heart-filled loads, Patrick would ponder the depth of a lake or the size of a whiskey for his guests to take. Generations from his clan stared into the flames of a fire that burned that had no name. His wrinkled hands and Guinness lips, his devil smile I was drinking in sips. For this limestone wasteland was his place, and his sauntering feet never left a trace. His words, they felt like an ancient song, passed from the mouths from his blood long gone. He was an epic man who had ran his fate, yet his funeral was sung by a bird on a gate. For finches knew on the wings of time that Patrick flew on the rhythm of a rhyme. The poem of Ireland kept his belly full, this rich, broken landscape of the meat of a bull. And at night, small universes spoke his name, and his cottage was moonlit in homage to a man <clears throat> who remained untamed. If you drive in the night, you might see his shape wandering the roads like a ghost trying to escape. But now he's left. He's gone toward a distant sun, and the bachelor king leaves behind no one. When you visit the barn, look for an empty dirt road near a magnificent dolmen beside a broken abode. Call out the name Patrick O'Leary in the night, and you might just see his laughing shadow light. For the men of the West, the old farmers, one and all, carry the soul of Ireland and will never ever fall. Thank you for sharing that, Alan. That was very beautiful. Thanks. So, a lot of the landscape here is very harsh and very poor, and the history of colonization tried to destroy the Irish for eight centuries, 
but they failed because the immigrancy that was enforced spread their seed all over the planet, like putting a fist coming down on a bowl of water and all the droplets flying everywhere. That seed now gives the Irish identity, which is basically known all over the continents of the world. And what is it, how the Irish survived? And I've thought of it, it's simply softness, not hardness, not hardship. Out of hardship came softness, the softness of language, the softness of music, the softness of poetry, the softness of the tree that bent in the storms and didn't break. So don't underestimate the power of softness because it's poor, you know? A lovely story that Ram Dass talks about is our judgment toward one another. When you look out and see a forest of trees and all the different shapes, the way the branches are gnarled or they're hardened or they're broken off and the, maybe the branches are grown a different way because of the sunlight. And we look at those trees and see them as beautiful because of their difference. And that's how we should look upon each other as human beings. There in understanding the contrast, so they say, do we recognize the value of beauty? Our demons and our angels that live within and, you know, we... We have to appreciate everything about each other. I think this whole movement about, you know, people having to be excessively positive and happy all the yeah, time um, is over the top and it's actually creating a wave of people who are not in touch with their soul at all. They're just completely living in their 3D reality and not connecting with any of their darker emotions and the truth is we have our shadows and our shadows need to be met when you have encountered your darkness you are more than willing to hold space for others mm -hmm. so i find a lot of groups that come here if they don't want to hear about your pain then they're not they're not in touch with their own pain nor have they healed themselves nor have they done any work of themselves because i can sit with someone i've sat with people here in huge pain and I can sit there all night if it needs to be for them and I'm not like oh I don't want to know about that energy and, and like this whole thing this whole dichotomy of saying it's either negative or positive is so reductive the human complexity of the universe of emotions is not just negative or positive we're not batteries we're complex machines we're complex souls we're complex spiritual creatures we're complex minds of infinite potential and possibility we're not just either negative or positive yeah. so people say or positive, or you being too negative. Don't cauterize pain. Pain is ultimately one of the biggest transformers as we've just talked about. So I say, show me your pain. Let me sit with your pain. Release your pain. Reveal your pain. But don't hold in your pain. In a world that's in pain, look at your pain. Look at the dark corners. Look at the uncomfortable family relationships. Look at the relationship breakdowns. Look at your own failures and realize that that's the road to, to true glory, is, in, is, is embracing those failures. You don't learn nothing by success, you learn it by failing. Or what you perceive as failing. You know, people look at their lives, oh, I don't have this, I really regret having that, I don't have this, and all that. And then, you know, the, I believe in gratitude as well, but I also believe in, in sort of like stoicism, which is you, you accept reality, but you still have hope. Mm-hmm. Afraid of reality, you bring. You say you look at it in the eye, but you still have hope. A lot of the spiritual stuff is spiritual bypassing. Is this fluffy sort of like I'm not willing to look at any of this shadow, but everything's beautiful and, and life is divine. No, life is hard. 
life is hard. You know, we can all name stories of people you know that have lost their kids. It's, my best friend died and left behind his wife and two kids. He only died young. You know, my mother died. Like, lots of stuff I've seen has happened around me. And yet still, my, one of my best friends is 92 years old, and it's my closest friend on this earth. And we have the most extraordinary relationship because we've talked about every single thing of life, death, relationships, everything. And through that, we've developed this bond of realizing that, we, yes, we have suffering, but we celebrate every moment together. Mm -hmm. Everything becomes precious. Everything is important, mm -hmm. you know? When my friend was dying and he just kept saying to me, I'm, I'm seeing all the things that I wish I could have done that I can't do them. It's just a terrible loss for him. So my, one of my sayings is when I'm around here and there's a dilemma, I say, well, no one's died, you know. People get so many, much worked up now about money or about this. Or, and I'm not saying we should just all dismiss it all and live in Shangri-La. All I'm saying is there's a time and a place and you still have to be a warrior. A lot of men aren't warriors. What a warrior should be in this Me Too movement is someone who is dangerous. But not dangerous isn't going to assault somebody. Dangerous is he's going to jump into action, in the right action, in the right honorable action. Mm -hmm. And I've cultivated that after a lot of pain, in that I will not, I will not lose my masculinity to become submissive, subjugated. We need the warrior. We also need, I would say that men should be strong on the outside and porous on the inside and soft on the inside. Not the other way around. We have men who are unworked on in their bodies, but then they're really hardened inside. They're brutal inside. Mm. You know, they've, they've, they're emotional. Their eyes. And the one complaint that a lot of women have is a man doesn't express himself. So we need the balance, the two pillars to be balanced. Yeah. And, I mean, we, and we need them. You know, there's, there's this thought um, that I've been having over the past couple of months about you know, the masculine and feminine, but then we categorize yeah. it into, you know, these vessels that we carry ourselves in, right? So you are obviously a man and I'm a woman, but at the end of the day, we have two archetypes that live within us. We have the Eros and, you know, there are different um, capacities in different situations. So there are times when I can be extremely soft and there are times when I can be extremely hard. And similarly with, with you, and so it really isn't a conversation. I feel like we need to shift the conversation around the masculine and feminine because it yeah. almost becomes very um, All right. know, tunneled, tunnel vision, so to say, that yeah. you know, we, we do have these capacities to be both ways within. And I think there's been a lot of you know, things that have been set up as children, we, we learn certain things and we teach our kids certain things. You know, a boy should not play with a girl and a girl should, you know, play with dolls and I don't know, cook, you know, just a real stereotypical crap that's out there. But the truth is that girl may really love cooking. And if she does, yeah, sure, experiment. That's her creative outlet. But she could also lo love kung fu fighting, you know, and, and what do you call that, right? So it's this, this thing inside which is... A different, it's a different capacities for every single person. And I think we need to be able to appreciate whatever level that is in whoever you are, not looking at you as a man or a woman, but looking at you as a human. Exactly. And, and all this whole gender identity politics and all this stuff that we've become obsessed with, I simply look at you as another living being, the same as I would look at a hawk or, or you know, a, a horse. Or I don't mean like, what I mean is like, of course, there's qualities 
that the feminine has that can be very powerful and vice versa. But this whole sort of like polarization and sort of like, I found for me as a man now, it's very difficult around the feminine, especially in the, in the terms of relational things where men are, and again, this is a whole kind of worms. Men are like, well, I'm afraid he didn't say boo now. Yeah. Now, could that be what the way it is? Yeah, maybe it has to tip over to that side for a while. But then there needs to be a balance again and a mutual honoring, a mutual honoring. Because if men are so empowered and the, the, you know, the most powerful, why is there such a high, why is men the highest rate of suicide if we're so powerful? Why are we killing ourselves? Because we're so empowered? No. And I'm not victimizing men. I'm just saying that's not addressed. Because yes. men deeply struggle. I want to read one poem actually that actually talks about that. And again, I'm not into the sort of whole sort of men's movement. So I'm into humanist movement. I'm into human equality. Yeah. I'm into people not dying of starvation every day. You know, I don't care if you're a man or a woman or an animal. So okay. it's a short poem. It's called Father. I went to an ocean filled with my father's fears. I went to an ocean filled with my father's tears. I went to a shoreline unbroken in the sun, and there the father's father stood joining me as one. For the rapture of the universe was caught in every wave, and ceaseless grief and sorrow had made me such a slave. The roar of storms above soon approached the soul-filled caves, and then all the father's fathers started to be saved. Their voices whispered nightly, on perfect water foam. In unison they spoke and said, my son, you are the unwritten poem. For the sweat of world betrayal by fuller broken men had kept my blood and anger so frozen in the den. So I went upon my knees at the holy ocean's brow and I knew the warrior serpent was standing with me now. I carved the words anew in sands unwashed by time and said, now the grief you suffered, Father, will be washed along with mine. That's a tribute to my journey, which is carrying the male wound for generations and finally putting my hand up and saying, it stops here. For my level of expression is healing to the ancestors that have been waiting for me, for someone like me to come along at the point of my line to heal the line. And I've suffered and paid a price for that in my own family relations because of it. But I refuse to not see the pain and, and to speak it out and honor it. I want to ask you, when did you, when did you start writing? Have you always been a writer? Well, you know what? I'd say I've always been a writer in terms of only, I was reflecting today that even as a child, like I've also been a professional actor. I've done public talks. I've been a filmmaker. I've been a poet. You know, um, I've written novels, I've written screenplays, and um, I've always had this imagination that's been very much able to sort of spin these incredible, ridiculous, wild stories from the most simple things or, or to see the beauty or the un entire universe in a butterfly's wing. Like, you know, I've, I realize now I've written probably for 15 years since the film, actually, since I wrote that narrative for the film, I only in the last seven years have I written seriously in a way, but I've always been that person who's connected that way. So there was never a beginning time. It was probably since before I was born or at the point of birth. I don't know. So 
So, what's your take about studying art? A friend of mine, a young girl, a young woman, she's a really brilliant writer. Like you can tell, she's got so much potential. But I can tell she's almost she she's so worldly in her writing. But there's no, and yet she suffers privately from various things. But the two haven't met yet mm. because she's in college academia. And I'm like, you don't need to go to college if you're a writer. You need to experience life. I'd rather let someone travel the world than sit in a university room reading the words of others who have traveled the world. <laughs> There's no point sitting there quoting Walt Whitman when you need to become your own Walt Whitman by going out there and living. Mm -hmm. Like as an actor, it was only real life. That, like it's funny, I sort of stopped acting. I can't even explain why because I was always a very, very good stage actor, and I hadn't really lived. Now, if I do go back, when I, if I do go back on stage, there's so much more life. And so much more expression of poetry and nature, which should be interesting to an audience, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it's we're given seeds of various talents, and we grow them or we don't grow them, or they get crushed, or you know. But if the seed's not there, doesn't matter how much water. We know there's a lot of people going around who claim themselves to be artists. I wouldn't go around claiming I'm a plumber. So I'm very quick to point out if something's not authentic, I, I will walk away. I'll turn my back on it. So, you know when something feels, you know, I lived in New York, I used to go to art exhibitions every week, you know, and I, most of the time I end up just walking in and walking back out again. It had to be, you had to go back to the Metropolitan Museum and I'd be struck by Van Gogh or be struck emotionally. That's something. You had to be struck like by lightning, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't happen, it's not real to me. Mm -hmm. It's blamange, it's cultural yogurt. Every depiction of life or a story should come from a place of truth. And that doesn't mean that everyone's place of truth will resonate with you or me. But if it doesn't resonate with you, then you are not the audience profile for that particular artist. I think the point is really deep-rooted into the word authenticity and as long as the artist or creator, in this case, we are talking about artists, but this really goes out to any creator in the world of business, entrepreneurship, art, in homemaking, it's all about being true so that your best self can be reflected in every action. We need to up our authentic content and our authentic exchanges and our, our authentic communion conversation to up the vibration of the potential of our hope if we don't do that well then we're just becoming like ghosts almost i don't want to live in a society where we're where um we're not in physical physical communion with each other we're not in verbal communion with each other we're not in tribal communion with each other this is fine as a means to serve something else but if this becomes our master and our destiny, I'm really not interested. I don't want people to say, well, this is the new way. No, a conversation will never not have energetic importance or, or energetic healing or, or, or being listened to in person with a person in front of you has an energy, has a feeling. You know, if that is becoming less common, then I think we're living in an increasingly sad world. Because I love the physical, I love the liminal, I love the sacred. But I also love, like, an example, like I, my friend left me his dog to mind, and it was a great week. 
because it brought back all my joy again, all my 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 childishness. Because the dog knew nothing except looking, asking you to take care of him, and being excited to go for a walk, or being excited to jump in a lap, or just excited just to see you and sit beside you. I mean, if we if we gave affection to people the way we gave affection to pets, we'd, we'd have, you know, if someone came in the door and started stroking us, oh my God, you're such a lovely person, you're so beautiful, look at you, you go, get the hell off me. What'd you do it to a dog? What'd you do it to a dog? Why, do you, why would a person give all that love to a dog and not even look at a human being? Do you see what I'm saying? The amount of, people go, how beautiful pets are. No, it's because we allow ourselves to give unconditional love towards Yeah. But we seem to have a huge issue doing that towards each other. We're not built to be little islands, little islands sitting like this, like cold and shivering from the lack of humanity. Break it down with language, break it down with poetry, break it down with passion. Passion, people, someone's coming, you're very angry. I'm not angry, I'm passionate. Mm -hmm. I'm not wrong with anger either. Not directed at a physical being, but directed at the world. Directed at suspicion of being taken advantage of. You have to keep your fury and your passion and and your sovereignty in this world. I'm not giving up my sovereignty for anything. I'd rather die than not have my sovereignty. That's the truth. Because then you're not living anymore. You might as well be a bird in a cage. You know? So poetry can break those boundaries. Or art, proper art, for want of an overused word, art is an overused word, can, can break, can, should reflect our potential, should reflect our humanity, should reflect our greatness, our possibility. And then action with that. You know? Because it, I was reeling off these statistics when all this virus thing was getting out of crisis. You know how many people die a day from hunger? 35,000 people die a day of hunger right now. Nine million people die a year from hunger. Six million people die from cigarettes. One and a half million people die from car crashes. A million people a year die of malaria. Here's the deal. We're going to die. We're mortal. Get over it. Come into contact with your death. That's a more important journey than worrying about it in life. Bring it with you. Walk it with you. Keep it on your shoulder like the Buddha said, you know? So that transparency, the passing of all things is what makes something beautiful. Like a flower wouldn't be beautiful if it didn't fade. It blooms. The bloom is temporary. The blooming of spring, the blooming of summer is temporary. That's what gives it its luminance, its luminosity. If it, if it, if it, if it was to stay luminous forever, it would be like made of plastic. We'd lose our appreciation of it, you know? So we're defined by our mortality. That's what makes it beautiful because of the shortness of it. So we need to appreciate it more and don't let those, that thing called a structure keep removing and trying to destroy our humanity. They're trying to remove our beauty, our language, our love for each other, our sensuality, our eros, our passion. But we don't have those, what are we? We're people in a shop, like when I went earlier on to the store, people literally standing now officially have to stand two meters apart from each other with a red line and a sign saying social distancing. But that's the new reality. I don't want this. I'd rather live in a cave with some hamburgers and a, I don't know, whatever. Like, I, I, I don't want it. I've already lived on the other side of the world anyway, but I don't want to live like that. Your story is really intriguing because you've gone from New York mm. is a concrete jungle and mm. completely taken the opposite path and now planted in nature and I mean that in itself is something to share with the world right I mean would you have had it any other way now knowing how you feel being surrounded in nature or let me put it this way would you go back to New York 
or do you feel like that chapter is shut for you? Well, here's the thing. I don't think anything is shut. You should always stay porous. And I could say, well, I want to be in nature forever. Then I could end up in a city. But I tell you now, honestly, I feel I don't. I only want to be go to these places when I'm invited to my work, mm. because the invitation is bringing my nature of work with it. I don't want to just go into a place and sort of go, here I am. But I think I I wouldn't not want this journey. As in, I wouldn't want to know. I, I wouldn't. Uh, there's a line from Samuel Beckett that says, um, "The years that have gone." I wouldn't want them back, not with the fire in me now, you know? So if you said to me what would be my own personal dream, simply it sounds a bit, would be to, I have this vision of of a long cabin with glass stone, and, and I'm, I do building as well, so I'm getting more into the physical, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to build it with my friend with my own hands, and I want it to be on top of a hill looking at the ocean with trees surrounding it. And then you walk down this little path, and there's the ocean right there. And I want one space for working, one space for working out, one space for a guest, and one space for just living in, you know. And I just want to do my work, but I want to come back, and I want to have a horse. Because I look after chickens here, and I look after, you know, I have such an intimate relationship with looking after being responsible for things. You know, I don't want to just sit in a fucking corner and just write my work. I want my work to be medicinal. I want my work to affect I want my work to bring me a good living. I want my work to to bring me home because home, the name of my film, like for 19 years I've been looking for home. I thought I had it with my partnership that died. So what is my home? That's a big theme for me, actually, you know? So I think my home ultimately is my relationship of my own with nature, is my mortal relationship with the immortal nature. So... I'm fighting for my dreams like everybody else, but I'm not looking for that much in the world, you know? So the skill sets I've been given here are, are built upon here, like chopping wood. I could do a whole talk just on that, the relationship I have with wood and fire. You know, it's one of my main images to see the one with me by the fire. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of ceremonial fires here for groups. And again, it's something I never thought I'd turn into. So, so the physical has been just as important. The physical is the poetic as well. You know, so all I feel all those things moving towards this one place in my life where all of those things will be as one and it'll be sort of my own kingdom in a way. But it's a kingdom of nature and a kingdom of poetic medicine in a way, you know? I hope. Yeah, why not? I mean if that's that's what you envision, right? You can bring it mm. to I think you're you're already um very close to it. Maybe I am closer than I think, you see. You yeah. know? What would you say has been your number one pain point as an artist, be it a poet, a writer, a filmmaker, an actor? Share your thoughts with our audience. This sets the stage for artists to realize they're not alone on this and it also allows for creativity and finding solutions on how to help yourself as an artist and also be able to still create great work? Well, for me, honestly, it's it's being paid right for what I do. I have to say, like a typical artist, it's it's like, you know, what I, when I walk in a room and I do something with my work, it, it 
relatively stands out amongst the sort of more duller academic sort of people who are be much more looked after than me. So I'm a bit of like a Johnny Cash of the word world because it's like, where did this guy come from? I'm coming straight out of the swamps of nature, you see, you know? So I just want to be a bit more, I've, I've re it's really been very difficult for two decades, to be honest with you, and I'm, I'm a bit worn out by that. So I don't regret any of it. I just, I want it to be a little bit easier because I, I'll have no problem. I don't need, if I had a really comfortable life, I wouldn't want to, I'd never let it get too comfortable. I'd always want to be out in nature, out in the wind, in the rain, snow, chopping wood, being physical, because it's such an important part for me to, to keep the body moving and alive and, 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 and your relationship with, with nature. Um, um, that mutual love, that nature gives you something when you're out of your comfort zone. I love those places. Now I seek those places, you know? So I want those worlds to be amalgamated and then that I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable with, with you know, because, you know, in the arena that I'm in that I do is very unique. There's a couple of people like John O'Donoghue and another guy called David White. And John O'Donoghue's dead, but he was a very good writer and a philosopher. That's my arena. They, do re they did really well financially. And it's always a weird word to talk about financially when are, but it's very important to me. So I see where my potential is. And you go, well, at this stage of my life, in my 40s, you go, well, it should have happened. No, it could never have happened at any other time. It could never happen when I was 25. I knew, I knew nothing about the world, you know? And I behoove anyone to think that they can suddenly know. It, it takes a long journey because it takes that amount of time to go darker and deeper and fuller. Mm -hmm. And so it is what it is right now. And it, it, it sometimes doesn't make any sense, but then it does make complete sense. Like when I'm having these conversations, I can tell that it has been important where I've been, you know, it hasn't just been for nothing, which is going to be very easy to get and fall into that space, you know? Yeah. So it's never, it's never conventional. It's never going to be conventional. I'm always an outsider. And in a weird sort of way, when I did a couple of talks recently in January, people were sort of envious of them on the event and outside. They're so in this condition. I went to do this talk in the civic building with these people in nine to five jobs taking a lunch break. And I did this half an hour talk called Restoring Your Soul in the Working World. And people were literally crying coming up to me because their lives were so drained of elemental color. And there's me sort of like just being there as a sort of this presence of something different. Mm. And I go, well, I haven't, I haven't wasted my time. Absolutely. I mean, this is where it becomes very evident that the contrast is what people need to see to be able to know what exists outside of a norm so they too can embrace their uniqueness, can embrace the journey that I believe your soul yearns to fulfill during its time on Earth. I feel it. You're catching me at a very important crossroads, really where all of this is only forming, is yeah. only forming, you know, so the next path is really going to be a very big one. Yes. That things will all fall. You know, John Moriarty talks about that, which I love, that um, sometimes in life, God can act a parable out on you. I feel like it's got so extreme for me that something's working its way, has worked on me to bring me to this point, you know. Yeah. But it's not for the artists. You know, you need courage, courage, yep. which is French, moving through the heart. Yep. You don't, 
Absolutely. I love that word. Love takes courage. And love has been completely pushed in the shadows as being a wishy-washy word. And it's a pity that tapping into your emotions is almost looked looked down upon. What what is life if you can't tune into your emotions and you don't deal with them? And this is why when you do talks with crowds that are stuck in that in that space, you can mm. feel these souls wanting to have a conversation about just exactly. getting in touch with their emotions and being able to lead with love. I mean, I sense your energy now, and your energy is like, you know, you're ready. I can feel like you're ready for something, something new. Your eyes are just like beaming, like you're ready for something new. You know, you're ready for that next stage, and it will come to you. I don't I believe that we all do work on ourselves, and when we're ready, it's almost like an initiation. We go through an initiation. Yeah, it is. Right? It totally. Is. Yeah. It, and even for, for I, I talk a lot about this, actually. Uh, um, when we're not given the original initiations that we used to get in all the cultures now, we have to seek it for ourselves. And the beauty of the feminine is that they sort of come with an initiation already in them, the ability to create and stuff, life and stuff. But the male has to, has to learn, has to actually be shown how to grow. And there's a story of a man bringing his grandson to the edge of the ocean blindfolded. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking out the blindfold and saying, "See all of this. This is this is uh, this is this will be yours one day." In other words, a man must seek his soul in the world. He must go to the world and seek his soul. He just can't get it just by going to get a job and having a kid. He actually has to go and seek his soul. And the ones who have are, are the ones who are my brothers. The ones who have not, and I've seen them pass through here, end up coming to me to, to understand why. Do, how come I be thriving and not drinking or taking pills or? You know, like, and, mm-hmm. and I was very cognizant of that. Having grown up in a family with some of that in Irish culture, I was very distant from that. So, to answer a simpler question, another question asked me earlier, how did you decide to go to that path? Well, it was also to do with my family history, where I didn't want to be one of these people that just sat and, and cauterized growth. Because I think addiction is cauterizing growth. That's all it's doing, it's stopping growth. So, I was lucky that I had writing to be my therapist, my teacher, my mentor. The writing taught me as much as I was using it. So, What would be your advice to artists who are listening in right now? Don't be aspiring. Be one. Mm-hmm. Say you are. Be it. Um, don't be looking for some destination that never comes. You know, there's no, there's no top of the mountain. It's life unfolding. There's only lifetime. There's no other kind of lifetime. There's no downtime, uptime, family. There's only lifetime. And it's like sand running through our hands. Don't wait. Go out and live. And then take every moment of that living and pour it. As I said to my friend, this lovely long woman, she's only 18 or 17. I said, she's learning to play flute. She, she went through all this stuff. I said, everything that happens to you, put it into your flute playing. Everything that happens to you. So everything that happens to you, to become the artist, you must put everything you are into the creation of, of the things that you want to see created. What, by doing that more regularly, then it becomes seamless. You know, it's not separate. It's, it's part of you. It's not a separate thing. It's not academic. Yes. You can learn from books. But not, it's not academic. Yes, absolutely. It, it's infinite. It's, it's universal. It, it's, it's primal. It's elemental. It's mm-hmm. you, you know. Art 
to be an artist is to become you. It's become the full identity of who you are. That's the real journey, you know. And once you do, you leave an imprint through all time. I mean, look at words live forever. You can pick up a book from 400 years ago, Shakespeare, and it's still like it was written this morning. You can see a painting by Van Gogh and see it was here just by doing some finishing touches, you know. Mm-hmm. When you have no choice, when you'll know, when you'll know, or when you're in your deepest pain is when you'll know whether this is your calling or not. Because if you avoid that, then you're not, then you're, you're avoiding the whole idea of the journey in the first place. So the journey is for others in the end. It's for others. It's, it's for service in the end. If art hasn't got service in it, it's, a, it's forget about it. Go and be a plumber. And not so much about service so that you go out there and save the world and sure art can do that through its messaging, but through your authenticity and really speaking your truth, that you become a flame that lights the torch for so many other artists just by you following your heart, following your truth, alchemizing your pain into works of great art that can be remembered for generations to come. I love it. I love it. Yep. Art is about service, 100%. Yeah. And on that note, I'd like to close by saying thank you, Alan, for spending this time with us and sharing your life journey with so much openness, vulnerability, and authenticity. It really is an example for people out there who are artists to do likewise, alchemize their pain into masterpieces of art, be able to share their hope, their love, their passions, their anger, in a way that people can then resonate with and transcend creating a new reality. Living your truth means living in love. And what better way to live than that? All right. Until next time, my friends. Seek your truth and then live it. It takes some courage and a whole lot of love.